Good morning, boys and girls. Good morning, boys and girls. Ooh. Are y'all always that quiet at home? <laughs> Would y'all like to start? Maybe we can warm up a little bit. Can, can we sing a song together? Do you have a song that y'all would like to sing? What would you like to sing? God is so big. That's a good one. Y'all help me real good. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. The other evening at the youth, there, um, Patrick Shank read a story, and I've heard the story, but I never saw it in print. But anyway, do y'all like stories? Yes. All right, good. I like stories too. And I thought I'd read you this story. This story is about a little boy and a sailboat, and the title is called Twice Yours. And I'll try to show you the pictures as we go along. What are you carving, Grandpa? Corey asked as he climbed onto the porch swing and sat beside his grandfather. Something for you. For me? Well, what is it? Something to help remember who you are. Corey watched his grandfather's hands. They were big and brown, and they knew just what to do with a piece of wood and a pocket knife. This piece of wood reminds me of something that happened to me a long time ago, and I was about your age. Tell me, Grandpa, tell me a story. Corey, he leaned back against Grandpa's shoulder and waiting to begin. Do y'all do that? Do you all go to your granddaddies and grandmas and tell them, tell me a story? Anyway, here's Grandpa beginning a project. For weeks, a boy worked to make a lovely little sailboat. Carefully, he carved the boat out of balsa wood, formed the bow, the stern, the hull, and the rudder, then he searched through scraps of material his mother had given him until he found the perfect fabric to make the sail. And I'll let you in on a little secret. We needed a sailboat, and I found a sailboat, but we didn't have a sail for it. And I'd like to thank Sally for helping me make a sail for our sailboat. When every piece was put together and the paint and the glue were finally dry, the boy, he cut a long piece of string and he tied the string to the back of the boat. After school the next day, the boy hurried home. Gently, he picked up his boat. 
his sailboat and he ran down to the stream that flowed through the town. Here's a little boy continuing his work project, making the sailboat. Kneeling at the edge of the creek, the boy placed his sailboat in the water. Holding the end of the string tightly in his hand, he pushed the little boat, he pushed it out in the stream. It was in the slow water, and then he pushed it out to where the water was faster. The boat floated out away from the bank, away from the boy. When it reached the middle of the stream, it was pulled into the fast-moving current. The boy watched with joy as the boat sailed over the rocks, past the roots in the trees. We're sailing! We're sailing! He cried, running alongside his homemade boat. So what he had it out in the water and it was going along fast and he had a, ho a hold of the, of the back with this string and he was running along the edge and he was keeping up with his boat. Uh, and this was such a fun thing to do. He really enjoyed sailing his sailboat on the water. And here's the little boy uh, running beside the stream, uh, holding to the string, um, sailing his boat. Every day, the boy came back to the creek and sailed his boat, and he pulled it back to the shore. And he sailed his boat, and he pulled it back to the shore again, day after day. One day, when the boy was running along the stream bank beside his homemade sailboat, the string broke. Wait, stop! The little boat was out in the, the fast water, and it was getting away, and the string was broke. What was he going to do? And the little boat sailed out of sight. Every day, the boy walked up and down the creek, wanting and searching for his boat. He couldn't find his boat, and he was hoping that maybe it had washed up on a rock or perhaps got stuck around a root or something. Here's the boat taking off in the stream. One day, while searching for his beloved boat, the boy went farther downstream than he ever went before. He followed the creek through a grove of pine trees and under a footbridge. Suddenly, up a, way up ahead, he saw another little boy that was playing with a boat. What do you reckon it was? When he got closer, he saw it. Well, that's the sailboat that I made. The paint was chipped and the sail was torn, but he still recognized that boat because he had made that boat. See, the other boy was playing with it and he came up and found the boat that he had made. That's mine, he shouted, running up to the other boy and he reached to grab the boat with his hands. No, it's not. It's mine. I found it. No, it's mine. I made it, but I lost it. Now give it back. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, said the other boy, still holding tightly to the boat. Well, I'll trade you for it. What do you have? The boy that was playing asking, what do you have? What do you have to trade for this boat that you say is yours? The boy reached in, inside his pockets and he pulled out everything he had. He said, well, I've got some string, I've got some bottle caps, 
I've got three marbles, I've got a rubber snake, and I've got a pocket knife. Well, said the other boy, how much of that, those things will you give me for your sailboat that you say that's yours? I'll give you everything I had, the boy replied. You can have it all. It's a deal, exclaimed the other boy, dropping the sailboat and reaching for the string and the bottle caps, the marbles and the rubber snake and a pocket knife. He, the second boy, he was done playing with the boat and he was ready to pick up the other treasures that was in the boy's pocket. The boy picked up his sailboat and he walked back upstream under the footbridge through the grove of pine trees and back to the place where he had first launched his sailboat. He said to his little sailboat, you're twice mine, he said, hugging his boat tightly to his chest, once because I made you and once because I bought you. I bought you back. And here he's so tickled to get his boat back. Grandpa finished the story, and he was whittling on the last piece of wood, um, the last piece from his block of wood, and then he handed the carving to Corey. It was a cross. This is for you, Corey. It will remind you of the one who made you and the one who bought you. So here's Grandpa. He was still whittling and he was making a cross. What do you mean, Grandpa? Jesus wanted you for his own. He created you to bring him joy. And then he paid for you, not with marbles and bottle caps and a pocket knife, but something that was far more precious. He gave everything he had. He, gave, he paid for you with his life. And here's Grandpa telling the story about the cross. Corey clutched the cross in his hands. Thank you, Grandpa. That's the best story ever. Grandpa closed his knife and he put it in his pocket. Yes, it is, Corey. Indeed, it is. And here's... You know that you were bought with things that can pass away. You were not bought with things that can pass away like silver and gold. Instead, you were bought by the priceless blood of Christ. He was chosen before God created the world, but he came into the world in these last days for you. So, boys and girls, this, this kind of rep, um, is a replication. And you think about the cross that what Jesus did for you do you all know the Bible says that God created you? God made you. And you know, God made everyone in this auditorium. But when we got bigger, we got to the point where we made some wrong and bad decisions. And not only has Jesus made us, but he was also willing to go to the cross to give his blood so he can buy us back. So do you know what? We can be twice Jesus's because he not only created us, but he paid with his blood to buy us back.
So remember that. Jesus not only made you, but he gave his blood to redeem you back to himself. So remember the story of the little boy and his boat, and remember the story of the cross. Now, could we have a, sing another song before you go back? How about Jesus Loves the Little Children? Will you all help me sing that one? Jesus. day we thank you so much for these children that you created and not only for the children up here but for each one of us in this auditorium we thank you that you created us and you loved us so much that Jesus was willing to go to the cross because he was willing to give his blood to redeem us back so that we can have joy and hope now and in eternity father we believe that you uh, have a specific plan for each one of these children. We thank you for each one. We thank you for their parents. And I pray, Lord, that, that you will uh, help the parents raise these children for you and they can grow up to be men and women for you and for your kingdom. Father, bless them in a special way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And after the service, I'll try to have a little treat in the back. If, if y'all get through... Uh, I think there may be enough for some of the youth and maybe for some of the parents. I don't know. But anyway, you all come uh, at the end of the service, and I'll try to have a little treat. Thank you, and you may go back to your parents. Thank you, Ilum, and thank you, students, for being such a good class. Now for the message. I'd like to address the men of the congregation on this question. How many of you men, how many of you husbands, or how many of you youth boys have been at work at some time in your life on the farm and you have met with an unexpected accident? Maybe you were chasing a cow or a heifer in, the, heifer in the barn and you went around a corner and you slipped and you were slathered with manure. Maybe worse yet, maybe you were out in the night and you got sprayed by a skunk. Well, I don't know what might have happened to you, but because of that, your clothes were offensive. When it, when it came time for you to clean up, you went to the house to go in to clean up, but you were denied entrance into the house by your wife or your mother. Why? Because the clothes that you had on were offensive. Well, what's the recommended remedy? The recommended remedy is to clean up and then change your clothes. I like to think of that this morning as a parallel or analogy my dear people, are there not times in church life when our clothes are offensive to others? Or how we wear our Christianity may be offensive to others. 
I share this analogy with you this morning in sincerity because of several conversations I had recently with several brethren. And these conversations had to deal with the health of the, the spiritual health of the local congregations. And I would tell you I was saddened because I detected echoes of frustration, despondency, a negative current of ill will, disunity, discouragement, a fragmenting of relationships, and etc. You get the picture. And I would say part of the reason I share what I am this morning is because of the burden of those conversations with, with those two men. One was an ordained man, one was not. They were in states, in states far from here. Why do I tell you this story? Because of what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Is it possible that Satan would also like to target you and me, us here at the peak? Absolutely. We know it, it's true because of what we read in 1 Peter 5, 8. The Bible tells us this. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil... As a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. What is Satan's goal? In verse 8 here it says he walks about seeking whom he may devour. That's Satan's goal. To devour you and me. That's his goal. He desires to divide and conquer. We know that in the account in God's word that Satan had a battle in heaven, and you know how that battle turned out. Isaiah 14 would tell us that Satan wanted to do this, he wanted to do that, he wanted his throne to be equal with God, and you know what happened. Isaiah 14 would tell us that he was cast out of heaven. Luke 10, verse 18, would bear the same thing. Satan was upset, he lost the first battle, and then he was thrown out of heaven, and then he took the battle to the sun. And you know that Satan lost the second battle at the cross. And especially when Jesus there dying at the cross, he said, it is finished. That was not only his life, but his life. Jesus had fulfilled the work of his father. And Satan lost the second battle. And then he takes the third battle for the souls of men. He lost to the father. He lost to the son. And now he takes to the battle to you and to me, the souls of men. And we feel that battle. We know that. Satan desires for the battle for the souls of men to take them to hell. But we can be victorious through the blood of Christ. Another reason I chose to share what I did this morning is because of a devotional Sally and I read this, this past week in Beside the Still Waters. It was Thursday morning. The recommended, often we read the recommended scripture before we read the story. And we did that Thursday morning. And the recommended scripture was Colossians chapter 3. And I was especially challenged by verse 12 and the following of the clothes that we are to put on. 
And I believe the clothes that we're supposed to put on there in Colossians chapter 3, I think they are an effective vaccine against church problems. The title of the message this morning is, Have You Changed Your Clothes? I invite you to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read this from the NIV. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 15. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, the King James would say to put on, but the NIV says, clothe yourselves. Put these clothes on. With, put yourself, put these clothes on, which are compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body ye were called to peace. And be ye thankful. So I ask again, have you changed your clothes? Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 tells us the futility of trying to win God's favor by our own strength, our own initiative, that reads this way. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Those filthy rags are offensive, and those filthy rags stink. I'd like to consider briefly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the old life and the clothes that we used to wear. But I would invite you to Colossians 3, verses 5 to 11. We read there, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in the ways in these ways, in the life that you once lived. You used to walk, that is past tense. Those were the clothes of the past. But notice verse 8. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. I was really impressed as I was preparing for this sermon of how Paul talks about the old life in verse 7. He said, you used to walk this way. That was the past life. But he says in verse 8, but now, that's present tense. Do they have everything put together? Do they have some work to do? It kind of reminded Brother Dave's sermon, we're not home yet. The past, the clothes that we wore in the past is one thing, but Paul says, but now, which is present tense, you must rid yourselves of all such things, anger, rage, malice, and so on. And that really impressed me. Are you and I not also living in the present? 
Yes, maybe you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years already, but do you have some work to do? We have some work to do. I believe we do. So the clothes that we wore from the old life, they were nothing but filthy rags. They were offensive, and they were unacceptable to Jesus. And just like our mothers or our wives denied us entrance into our house, we were denied entrance into the kingdom of God or the body of Christ until we were willing to shed those old rags. Jesus provided the cleansing agent for us to be cleaned up. That was his blood. And then Jesus provided us with new, a clean, a fresh set of clothes. And that's what we want to look at. I'd like to spend a little more time not dealing so much on the old, the past life, the old clothes that we used to wear. But what about now? What are we to be putting on? Let's go back to the text, which was verses 12 to 15. I'm not going to go and read that again. We already read it in the beginning. But I'd like to ask you a few questions. Are you concerned for the health of the body of Christ at large? But more specifically, are you concerned for the spiritual health of the local body here at the Peak Congregation? Are you concerned about that? And brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that it's much easier to be critical, look critically at others, and dismiss the obvious needs that we have within our own heart. Jesus spoke to that in the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about the beam. He talked about the moat. And he said, take care of the beam so that you can see clearly to take care of the moat. You and I have work to do presently in our own hearts Let's don't be so concerned with the moats that we're observing somewhere else. What about the beam? Do we have work to do in our own heart, in our own life? You know, it is true. Many of us, most of us, have received Christ years ago. I think if I would ask or for a raise of hands, how many of you have accepted Christ? And it's been a long time. Most of us, our hands would go up. But are you and I continuing to exchange the old rags for the new garments of sanctification that we're told to put on here in Colossians chapter 3? And these new garments here in Colossians 3, I believe that they will reduce and eliminate many frictions within the local body. And like I said, brothers and sisters, I have a burden for what I share this morning because of those two conversations that I had earlier Are you and I putting on garments of sanctification? Are we working on things in our own life today? Thank God that you accepted Christ years ago. But do we have some work? Paul seems to insinuate that we have some work to do yet today. What are we supposed to be putting on? We're told here in Colossians that we need to put on compassion. And I want to ask, are you and I sensitive to the physical and spiritual needs around us? I believe it's Christ's fuel. I'm sorry. I believe it's Christ's love that is the fuel that compels us into action. And we could go and consider the account of the Good Samaritan. 
I could read that, but I'm not going to read that this morning. But I would like to suggest to you that there were three groups of people that all saw the same man. They all saw the same thing, but with very different responses. The Good Samaritan, number one, he saw. Secondly, he took pity. And thirdly, he was moved to action. Like I said, three groups of people all saw the same thing and they responded so differently. The robbers, they saw a man to exploit. In essence, they said this, what's thine is mine, I will take it. The priest and the Levite also saw the same man. They didn't want to be involved. The priest and the Levite, they saw a man to avoid. In essence, they said, what's mine is mine. I will keep it. Didn't want to get involved. And yet the good Samaritan, he saw a man in desperate need. In essence, he said, what's, what is mine is God's. I will share it. Which one of those groups of people describe you? I was blessed this past week by hearing a story from Philip Wanger. We were talking about, we had a desire to have some personality profiles, somebody to come and share their life story at, at, with the youth. And someone suggested Richard Morales. Anybody, y'all remember Richard Morales? Thank you, some of you do. Richard Morales, it's my understanding, works here locally in the, in the valley. Uh, he's a, uh, a builder, and he, and he frames, frames houses here, and evidently he's paid well. But what he does with his money, when he saves up enough, he takes an old pickup truck or something, and he loads it up with Bibles and with wheelchairs and emergency equipment, and he takes it back to Guatemala to share with his own people. If I understood and remembered right, I thought Philip said this is his 37th trip. He goes to the border, he gets to the border, and he's required to pay $600 and maybe to the border control and to the, those that, that run the drugs, I forget. But anyway, 300 to one group of people, 300 to another, and then because he pays the money, he gets a stamp on the windshield of his truck, and he's made 37 trips, or he is going to, I think he's getting ready to leave on his 37th trip. And he's going to go, and he takes Bibles, and his theory is that when they put that stamp on, they tell the people that might take advantage of him. You don't want to fool with him. All he's got is Bibles and wheelchairs. You're not worth the effort. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, I'm challenged by that. How much have I sacrificed for the Lord Jesus? 37 trips, saving up and taking and sharing with his home, with his home people. I suggest to you that that's compassion. And in the local body here at the peak, 
Are you and I known? Are we clothed with compassion? You know, the Bible says that it's unwise to compare ourselves with others. We talked about in the Sunday school class to this morning. And maybe when we're considering wishing we had more, that I just look at Dave and I wish I had more of some of the things that he has or Samuel. But I don't know. This would be for some discussion. Is it okay for us to compare ourselves with others if we don't match up spiritually? I guess I was challenged by that story about Richard Morales and how much he's willing to sacrifice and take and give to his, his own people. I think, Jay, you've done very little. The second virtue that we're told to put on is kindness. Is my life a true reflection of the golden rule that we have in Luke chapter 6, verse 31? We are to do unto others, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule. Does my life reflect that? In the life of the church here at the peak, would people say that I'm governed by prejudice or by kindness? Do you and I, do we take time for those going through deep waters? Do we have time for children? Do we have time for our youth? And maybe if I'm talking to someone on the phone, do I come to conclusions? Do I come to a skewed judgment after hearing only one side of the story? Would people say of you and me, well, it's his way or the highway? Or would they say that you and I are clothed in kindness. The third virtue that we're told to put on in Colossians 3 is humility. Twice a year we go to John chapter 13 and we look at one of the most beautiful examples of humility and that's when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples I'm not going to turn to that passage, you know it well, but I'd like to share something I found from a book. The book title is called A Heart Like Jesus. And it reads this way, of all the men in that room, only one was worthy to have his feet washed. And yet, he was the one who washed the feet of others. The one worthy of being served, served others. The genius of Jesus' example is that the burden of bridge building falls on the strong one, not on the weak one. The one who is innocent is the one who makes the gesture. And you know what happens? More often than not, it's the one in the right, I'm sorry, if the one in the right, if he volunteers, volunteers to wash the feet of the one in the wrong, both parties get on their knees. And please understand, brothers and sisters, that relationships don't thrive because the guilty are punished, but because the innocent are merciful. We're talking about humility. And I ask a question, another question or two. two. Do you and I itch?
to be seen of men and to be blessed of them for our good deeds. If the truth were really known, which is our greater motivation? Is it to receive the praise of men or am I more concerned about the approval of the Father? As you and I interact in the local body here at the peak, do others enjoy a fragrance that comes from our garment of humility? Number four, gentleness. How do we handle the situation when a brother or sister is caught in the snare of the enemy? I was going to say, do we pick up the phone and call? But maybe I shouldn't say pick up the phone. I should just maybe say we pull out our phone. Do we pull out our phone and exclaim, well, did you hear the latest? Oh, it's so sad. Do we berate others for their weakness or immaturity? Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted. What is the goal? That you restore such a one. It's not to condemn. It's to restore. Restore such a one. How? In the spirit of meekness. As people observe our lives here, in the peak congregation, would they say that you and I are clothed in gentleness? Number five, patience. Patience is long-suffering. You and I live in a world of instant gratification. We may say, well, don't impose your desires or beliefs on me. But I would ask you, is patience one of the attributes that you would use to describe southeastern Mennonites. Is that what you'd say? Are we a patient people? I personally believe that our ability to be patient with others directly correlates to our comprehension of Christ and others' forbearance for me. I'll say that one more time. Our ability to be patient with others directly correlates to our own comprehension of Christ and others' forbearance for me. What are our brothers and sisters here at the peak? Do they know that we chafe while wearing this, this garment called patience? Or do they say that garment's a good fit for him or her? Number six, forgiveness. The basis for you and I to forgive one another is when we understand how much we have been forgiven. Once again, you know the scriptures well. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. I'll not go there. I was looking for my page. Sorry, you would think a secretary of conference would have his things together. I, I couldn't help but throw that in. I don't mean anything by that. Um, 
I ask the question, is it necessary for me to forgive others when they fail to come and ask for forgiveness? Do I need to forgive somebody? Yes, maybe they did me wrong, but they ain't come and ask my forgiveness either. What was Jesus' response? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' forgiveness of those old, those big Roman soldiers did not release them from their sin, but it did release Jesus to love. What about if I'm upset with another brother? Do I have the prerogative to go back and dig up old bones from the past? I'd like to read from our rules and discipline. And I'd like to call it our brotherhood agreement. People often, when they think of rules and discipline, it's rules, it's something I've got to do. Brothers and sisters, our rules and discipline is a brotherhood agreement, and let's don't forget it. I'd like to quote what we read there. Can we dig up old bones from the past? If somebody has upset us or grieved us or wronged us, page 25, no grievance can be brought up against another after peace has been expressed or communion observed, except when serious phases of the matter were hidden or unknown. Maybe in layman's terms, I'll do my best, but if we have expressed peace, we come to council meeting and we have expressed peace, and two weeks later, or a week later, two weeks later, we go ahead and we have communion. We've expressed peace, we have communed, we are not to be bringing up things, digging up old bones in the past. Do you understand? Do I understand? And I would submit to you that issues of irritation should be taken care of expeditiously or forgiven. Take care of it while it's on your mind. Take care of it pretty soon or forgive it. You have two options. It's one or the other. So in our congregational life here at the peak, what evidence proves that I'm wearing a garment of forgiveness? Number seven, love. If I have a grievance against my brother, it's very likely that I'm going to be critical of him. And as I'm critical of him, he's probably not going to be able to do anything right because I'm critical. If I have an attitude of love, it's likely that I will overlook some of his or her weaknesses. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 reads this way. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. What will it do? For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Because of time, I'm going to move on. You've heard me tell the story of Bob Pierce. I love that story. The story of a man who was willing to sacrifice for others because of their need. You know, we think about stories that we read about the Bible. I wish we had some accounts like that. But the story of Bob Pierce is like a modern-day good Samaritan. And you've heard me tell that story enough. I'm going to move on. But are there times when you and I, do we sacrifice for the good, for the comfort of another? 
as people observe my life, as they observe yours, would they conclude that we are governed by self-serving love? Or is there evidence, is there a substance to prove that we are clothed with a Christ-like sacrificial love? Is there evidence to prove it? Peace. I didn't write a lot about peace. But it seems to me that the eighth garment or eighth virtue that we are told to put on here in Colossians chapter 3, the garment of peace, I believe, is a byproduct of being willing to wear the first seven. Does our congregation here have a, at the peak, do we have a reputation for love and peace and warmth? I think you do. And you don't know how much it means to me. But you know, I do believe that reputation is somewhat overrated. Why? What is the true character that God sees? Jesus said in the seven churches in Revelation, I know thy works. He knew theirs. He knows ours. In conclusion, in verse 12 and following, the Bible tells us to put on the King James. The NIV says to clothe yourselves. Put these virtues on. What are they? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love, and peace. Brothers and sisters, these garments, these clothes, they're beautiful garments that Jesus has not only modeled for you and me, but he has also provided these garments for each one of us. So I ask you, have you discarded the old for the new? Is there a fresh fragrance emanating from, from the current garments that you're wearing? Is there evidence that you have changed your clothes?